Hey, this is where we are in the book of Revelation. So go ahead and turn in Revelation to chapter 6. We're going to skip right through announcements because I want to get into the word. I'm, I'm kind of chomping at the bit this morning. Well, I've got a word for you before we begin, and that word is overstimulation. Do you know what it's like? What makes you overstimulated? And again, I'm, I'm going to run through a bunch of things that hopefully are going to stress you out. But have you ever been in that circumstance where you're tempting to have a conversation with somebody, but the TV's on, and then you got that noise in the background. One of your teenagers walks by you, and they got some music playing on their phone. There's a kid crying somewhere. There's a dog barking somewhere. The cars are outside honking their horns. The lawnmower's going. The, the, you know, somebody else is out there with the blower. Just overstimulation, right? You can't concentrate. And what do you, you want? Quiet sometimes. The Word of God, in many ways, is overstimulating. For a lot of us, uh, we want to take, and we need to, and there's, there's a right way to do this, and there's a wrong way to do it too. But we need to take God's Word and break it into its pieces so that we can attempt to understand, to get, to get our hands on something that feels like is very intangible. And every time we get, we feel like we have a grip and an understanding, and all of a sudden it's like slipping through our fingers and we no longer understand or we have a new piece of, of information. For many of you, you're going to be young when it comes to the Word of God. If I bring up something like Genesis or Leviticus or Ezekiel, these would be names and ideas that are intimidating. For some of you, those passages in God's word are old friends. There's the Lord's exposed himself to you through those passages. So we sit in Revelation when you get into chapter 1 and it is declared to us to be a revelation, a revealing, a manifesting of Jesus to his church and to the world. You sit in chapter 1 and, and John turns around, he hears this voice that's like a trumpet, he turns around and he gives us a description of the glorified, our glorified Lord and it's, it's, it's an overstimulating description of his hair and his clothes and his radiance and his eyes, his feet, what he's in the midst of, the body of Christ, the church. It's, it's overstimulating. We've sat in Revelation 2 and 3 for seven weeks as we go through these seven letters. And in a lot of ways, it's overstimulating. He gives a revelation of himself. He gives praises and his problems and his rebukes to every single one of these congregations. We are told that if we have ears, that we're supposed to sit, think, respond, hear. And if there's a correction to be had to every single one of those churches. So out of the seven, five of them, where he addresses a problem with them, what does he tell them to do? Repent. When Jesus, in, in every single one of the Gospels, when he begins his public ministry, what are we told is the message that comes out of his mouth? And again, the Bible tells us, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the heart of our Savior, what did he teach? Repent. Why? Turn. Turn. Turn from yourself. Turn from this world. Turn from the devil. And turn to who? Turn to me. Follow me. 
I'll make you to be who I created you to be. Trust me. Learn from me. Become one with me. Know me. Obey me. Love me. So every single one of these complicated warnings, rebukes in, in the letters that can be overstimulating when you try and look at them as a whole, he says the same thing over and over again. If you're out of line, turn to me. I'm here to wash you. I'm here to cleanse you. Here's the promises. If you hope in me, if you trust in me, if you bend the knee to me in humility, here is how, here's the victory that I'm going to give to you and all of these wonderful promises. Last week, we covered chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation together, which, like I said, I'm not sure entirely what I communicated in my brain fog, but they are some of the highest descriptions that we have of our God. And those chapters, for me, are extremely overstimulating. You have God on his throne. You have these elders, these 24 elders that we try and put our hand on, but it, the description of who they are slips through our fingers. You have these four living creatures. You have the lamb. You have all these other angels. You have John. You have the drama that unfolds in it. Here you have John in a vision of heaven, and he's weeping. The description that we have when we're in heaven this is, this is the description where there is no more sorrow. There is no more pain. God wipes away the tears. And here we have John weeping in heaven because no one is found worthy to open this document, this scroll. And then there's the description of the one who is found worthy, Jesus. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. And when John sees Jesus the overstimulating scene turns into this description of a lamb as slaughtered, as slain, but it's alive. There's a resurrection that has occurred. So as we sit in Revelation, as we sit in the Word of God, as we sit, get into chapter 6 this morning, the overstimulation continues. And my job to, to teach is, yes, to help us to get a handle on the different facets, but my job is not to dumb God down and to drag God off of his throne down to your level so that you can understand him. It's not my job. And if I attempt to do that, then all I'm creating for you is an idol because I'm handing to you a description of something that is not God. So my introduction this morning is in the midst of being overstimulated in Revelation. We're going to keep trying to drill down into the pieces in a way that we can get a handle on what we can understand in the description. At the same time, I don't want any of us to lose that sense of being overstimulated by God that I want you to continue to see Jesus in all of his attributes. We can't lose the vision of Jesus in chapter 1. We can't forget his words to the churches in chapters 2 and 3. 
we can't lose the grandeur and the majesty and the glory of the vision that John has given in chapters 4 and 5. Because now as we turn to chapter 6 of Revelation, Jesus is the one that is still in absolute control of the scene. So let's read through chapter 6. Now I saw... When the Lamb, who is Jesus, opened one of the seals of this scroll, we'll get back into some of these definitions in a minute, I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, And he went out conquering and to conquer. And when he opened the second seal, who's he? The lamb. I have have written in my Bible the lamb over every single one of these he's because I get lost in the description. I'm overstimulated by all that's going on in this chapter. So I have this reminder for myself, he, the lamb, Jesus, our savior, our God, our creator is the one that is opening this document. And as he opens this document, there's a scene that is being unveiled. When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out. And it was granted to the one who sat on it to to take peace from the earth and that people, that's you and me, human beings, should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. When he, the lamb, opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. So I looked, and behold... A black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. When he, the lamb, opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And the name of him who sat on it was Death, and Hades, or the grave, or we would say today hell, followed with him. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. When he, the lamb, opened the fifth seal... I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. And a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren, who would be killed as they were, was completed. I looked when he, the lamb, opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, 
And the sun became black, black as sackcloth of hair. And the moon became like blood. And the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains. And said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come. And who is able to stand? All right, so what's going on? Again, in the scene in chapters 4 and 5, especially in chapter 5, we see that there is this scroll in the right hand of God on his throne. And there's different ideas in regards to what the scroll is. Some think that it's the book of life itself, where those names that will be with God in all eternity are written within. Some see this document as because of it, it's written on the inside and the outside and sealed with seven seals. This is a, the tradition of the day when it came to a will or to a deed, a document in regards to property. But whatever this document is, some see it also that it could be uh, you know, just the history of, of mankind, so to say, God's program and all that's involved from beginning to end. To open it requires uh, certain parameters to be fulfilled. And in the, in the drama of the scene, this is where John is weeping because nobody in heaven or earth or under the earth was determined to be worthy. And then he's told to stop weeping. The, behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David... He prevailed, he overcame, he's victorious. Jesus is the one who is worthy to loose these seals, to open this document, and to read and declare its content. As we sit in chapter 6, we're watching the seals just being undone. When we watch the seventh seal being undone, and this document is finally opened in the beginning of chapter 8, there's silence in heaven for 30 minutes. Again, this is where I want you to sit in the overstimulation. Remember all that is going on in the throne room of God. I think that it is an overstimulating environment. That we, in our flesh right now, we would not be able to be that in that environment today and be able to handle it in the glory and the wonder of it without dropping dead. That God is the one who has to enable us to stand in the future in his glory and all of that activity. But once this document is finally opened, all of that noise of heaven, all of that activity of where the eternal God dwells is complete silence. It's abnormal. So what is this document? I don't know. It seems to deal with the history, the activity, God's program, his word, what his plans and his purposes have been since before he created, 
and the demands that are necessary for fallen ones, such as ourselves, that are filled with sin and rebellion against God to be made alive and enabled to be in his presence for all eternity. And that here, the creation is being handed back to the creator, which we are told that will rule and reign in the new heavens and the new earth with him for all eternity. And whatever that looks like, oh my, right? Overstimulating. So as the lamb is opening this document... You know, I'm, again, my, my brain goes back to the, chap, the vision of chapter 1 of Jesus where he's got that form of a man again because I lose this image of the lamb. You know, is he opening it with a hoof? Is he, is he trying to bite it open with his teeth? You know, is Jesus uh, cracking it open and damaging the document? Is, does he have a knife in his hand where he's uh, carving through the wax very gently as he unseals this document, right? We don't have any of the description. What color is the wax? Is it red, like his blood? What's the image? What's the imprint in the wax? Is it a cross? Is it a lion head? You know, I don't have a clue. You know, we can really geek out in our imagination. But ultimately, the, the picture that is being unveiled through this is God is beginning to judge humanity that is standing in rebellion and rejection of him as God. So there are multiple ways to try and figure out God's future program when it comes to prophecy. I'm one of those who believes that the church has been removed out of the earth at this point in history. The Bible is very clear. It talks about this, this idea of a rapture. This is a Latin word that we get from a Greek word. But ultimately, it's this idea that there is coming a day in the future when God is going to reach down and he is going to seize those who believe in him and he is going to remove them out of this earth my understanding of that future event is it is going to come before the wrath of the Lamb is poured out on humanity. And there's multiple passages that we can sit in, and I'm not going to teach on the rapture this morning and all of its details. But if you want to, one of the, one of the passages you'd want to turn to is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And in that, there's a, there's a description that he who restrains is going to be taken out of the way. And it's seen as the Holy Spirit in regards to indwelling believers that when Jesus removes the church out of this earth prior to his wrath being poured out, that the restraint that the Holy Spirit is placed upon himself, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in judgment against humanity, there is a restraint from God currently right now. There's going to come a time in the future when God is going to unrestrain his wrath towards sin. And this is one of those things that's it's an overstimulating facet of God's word. What is it that God is holy and what is it that I am not outside of him? What is it that sin in its simplicity and complexity... And it's simplicity, which all Adam and Eve did was something that God told them not to do. As children, we have all disobeyed our parents. 
as creatures, we have all disobeyed our creator. What is it that my rebellion brings about this idea of sin and that the wages of that sin, which ultimately it's this, it's this absence of God's holiness, deserves the life that he has given to me to be taken away. To the point that the New Testament description is that every single human being that is born is born dead. No spiritual life until you bend the knee to Jesus in humility and we are told that we are born again, born from above, born of the Spirit of God, made alive. No longer the children of disobedience, no longer the children of wrath, but now the children of God, the children of light. All these wonderful descriptions that we have. Here, the scene that is unfolding before us in Revelation chapter 6 At the very end, we're told that it is the wrath of the Lamb. His anger towards sin, his anger towards rebellion. Again, this this anger is directed at human beings. Those that he created to image him in his likeness. That don't image him, that are in rebellion to him, that are in rejection of him. The very end of chapter 6, this, there's this repetitious um, snapshot. And the description is given in regards to, uh, it, it calls human beings those who dwell on the earth in Revelation. Those who dwell on the earth are the ungodly. Ungodly in the sense of they are standing in intentional rejection and rebellion against their creator. Those who dwell on the earth at the end of chapter 6, what are they trying to do? They know a God exists and is real. They know and they understand that their life context in this passage, in this future scene, is the direct result of the creator's wrath. And those who dwell on the earth, rather than humbling themselves, And surrendering to who he is, what do they choose to do? Hide themselves. Foolish enough to attempt to run from the face and the presence of God. Is there anywhere where you can run from the eyes of God? Nowhere. Psalm 139 talks about that. Where where could I run from God's presence? Could I go to a mountaintop? Could I go to a mountain valley? Could I go to the sea? Could I go hide myself in a closet? Can I go into a cave? Can I go to hell? There's nowhere where I could hide from the presence of God. And here, those who dwell on the earth, the ungodly, they are now receiving judgment. And in the midst of that judgment, we get this repetitious scene in Revelation that they refuse to repent. They refuse to turn from their idolatry. They refuse to turn from their economy. They refuse to turn from their religion. They refuse to turn from all of their idols to the true and living God. This is, this is the reasons that God is pouring out his wrath upon a Christ-rejecting humanity. 
And this is one of the major reasons that I believe that the church is absent because God is not going to pour out his wrath upon his bride. And again, there's, there's different ideas that we can sit in that. So this is the beginning where God is pouring out his judgment, his wrath. And I'd, I want to submit this question to you. If you were going to wrap things up, and I think I've already done this as we've been studying Revelation, but if you know that there's a date on the calendar when you're going to come back, there's a date on God's calendar when he knows that he is going to come back, what would you do before that event? Would you not attempt to continue to reveal yourself to as many human souls as possible so that they would repent? And that is God's heart. He tells us that he does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. He does not take pleasure in pouring out his wrath. This is agony. The heart of our God is given to us in his son as he overlooks Jerusalem. What does Jesus do as he's overlooking Jerusalem in his humanity? As he's looking at a city that he placed his name on so that he could reveal himself to all humanity. He's weeping over them because they were not willing to turn to him. This is not a go get them God kind of scene. This is agony. This is where every single one of us knows somebody and many somebodies who our understanding of their soul today is that if they died today, they would abide under this wrath for all eternity because they have refused to humble themselves before their creator. When their creator has chased them down just like he's chased you down. He's revealed himself to you. He's manifested himself to you. As you sit in this scene in, as Jesus is opening up these seals, the first four, dealing with these four horsemen, you know, these are famous visions, a famous passage when it comes to Revelation. But as these, as he cracks open each one of these seals, John is given a vision in the, in the spiritual realm, right? And a lot of revelation that oscillates between heaven and earth. And the vision that John is given, the, the scene is staying in this overstimulating passage of chapters 4 and 5. All that's going on in, that, in, that, in those chapters is still going on in the background as John is given this vision as Jesus is opening up each one of these seals. And the first one, it's given this description of a white horse. But the attention is not upon the horse. The attention is upon the rider. And not only is Jesus an absolute authority is the one who is worthy to open these seals and to open and read this document. Ultimately, he is the authority behind what is being given. The language in each one of these uh, visions that is given to John is there is being something granted. There is being something given to these writers. And just as the elders have a representation factor to them, not just who they are as individuals, but they're representing groups, these writers seem to be, it's in the spiritual realm, but they seem to be representing uh, what's going to unfold on earth in the future. And this rider that is on the white horse most see that this is the Antichrist. 
Daniel 9 gives us that prophecy that there is coming this lawless one, this one that we identify as the Antichrist that is going to be empowered by Satan, ultimately, again, Antichrist, standing in opposition against who Jesus is, that there is coming a day where this individual is going to make a covenant of peace with the nation of Israel. And again, there's a whole bunch of prophecy and different portions of the word that feed into the idea that this writer is the Antichrist. But ultimately, what is being given to this individual? A bow. A bow is it's an object of war. We're not sure at the beginning of how peaceful this conquering is going to be. We can imagine what a, a kind of upheaval in the world the rapture would cause when... How many millions of people are going to disappear, believers? What kind of upheaval is that going to leave behind? We watch a globalistic mentality uh, in our cultures today. At some point in the future, what we see in the beginnings of this global relationship, this global government, this new world order, so to say, it's going to come about in its fulfillment underneath the authority of this one that's identified as the Antichrist. Again, this is the vision that seems to unfold. At this time in the future, this individual is going to be granted this power to conquer. How much of that is through war? How much of that's through peace and treaty? We don't know. And we don't know how long that peace is going to last. We're told in Daniel that in the middle of this seven-year period, that this guy is going to go into the temple of God and declare himself to be God. So there's a three-and-a-half-year period that seems to be not as bad as the last three-and-a-half years. But immediately the vision goes from the first seal to the second seal. It goes from this, this rider that is going to conquer to the next rider that is going to bring about what? War. And this description is not even, you know, you have the, the rider again representing and seeming to represent humanity at this time where human beings are going to kill one another. That whatever the population of humanity is at that point, 25% of life, of human beings, are going to be slaughtered, murdered, violently at this time in history. Because the wickedness of the heart of man is going to just be vomited out into violence. We have this description in the world of Noah's day was filled with violence. And God judged that world dramatically with the flood. This future world that is unrestrained and unhinged is going to be violently judged by God. And this humanity is going to be violent against itself. That third horse, you're given this description of this, this, this black horse. And on the rider, the rider has scales in his hands. And the scales, again, the imagery that is being given is that uh, through this conqueror and through the subsequent wars is going to bring about great famine, is going to be, bring about great poverty. That the description of a, a, a quart of wheat for a denarius 
that that's, that's a volume of wheat for a day's wage is not enough to sustain a singular individual. So in other words, you're not going to be able to provide for your household during this time. Barley, is, it's a cheaper grain. It's not really good for eating. Um, but don't touch the luxury goods, the, the oil and the wine. There's going to be a distinction between, it seems, the, the rich class, those who are wealthy and to do, that they'll probably be okay and be able to buy and sell at this time, where those in the poor class, they're not even going to be able to take care of their basic necessities. And then the fourth horse that comes out of this is the, this, this description of death. Death personified. Life is personified through God because our God is life. Here, the wage of sin being death, death is personified. See this, again, in different portions of the Bible. Plagues, the consequences of all of those events coming to this culmination, and then when you see the fifth seal being opened you know this this group of the first four it's all together you can see a progression as each one of these seals is opened again remember all the overstimulating factors going on behind the scenes as john is witnessing every single one of this and then with the fifth seal all of a sudden he sees souls and the souls of these individuals are Human beings who have repented and turned away from their idolatry, turned away from their flesh, turned from the Antichrist, turned from Satan, turned from all of the activity that's going on at this point in history, and they've humbled themselves and surrendered to Jesus as Messiah. They're not hiding themselves from the wrath of the Lamb. They're looking to the Lamb for his grace and for his restoration, for his life, for his cleansing, because they have woken up just like the prodigal son woke up in the pig slop, woke up, woke up to reality. That's the description of these souls. But when they woke up to Jesus, what happened to them? They were slaughtered, murdered, violently for what? For the word of God and for the testimony that they held. And this is, you know, how do you, how do you apply this passage today? One, repent. Daily. We turn from ourselves, we turn from this world, we turn from the devil, we turn from deception, we turn from our lusts, we turn from everything. We deny ourselves and we follow Jesus. And we trust him to cleanse us and to lead us. But in this, it has this description. There, these human beings and us, we hold on to the word of God and to our testimony. And really, they, they, they mesh. But you have a testimony. I have, I have a testimony that nobody can take from my possession. I know exactly who I was apart from Jesus Christ. I know what I thought. I know what I did. I can look back in history and I can see all the ways that he revealed himself to me. I can see the ways that he protected me. 
When it comes to the Word of God, do you know the first book of the Bible that I read? It was the book of Job. I was in an intellectual traditions of the West class. I think my second quarter of college, reading all these other documents, and the first book of the Bible, my first exposure to the Word of God in depth, reading it for myself, was the book of Job. Unsaved, party boy, living for myself, doing whatever I want and content in it, and here God in his mercy revealed himself. Job, Job is a wonderful document if you have never read it before. He brought about different relationships, specifically my in-laws, my bride-to-be at that time, and used them to manifest himself to me. Came into a context like this where people who bend their knees to Jesus in humility were gathered together to worship him, to teach his word. I was transformed. This document, the word of God on which I hold and all of its complexity drives me to God every single day. We are told that eternal life is to know the Father and to know the Son. This document from Genesis to Revelation reveals him to me. You go sit in Genesis and look at the wonder, what is this being that he was able to speak this creation? It's, it's wonderful to me, fascinating. What is this sin of Adam and Eve? And how have I inherited this, this sin and this death? What is, what, is, what is this sacrifice? What is it that he chose Abraham, this one man out of nations that are standing in rebellion against him? By the way, the, the rider, the white horse rider, the best image that you can sit in who that individual is and what he's going to act like is Nimrod in Genesis chapter 10. Nimrod is the founder of Babel and he is the founder of Assyria. When we get into Revelation 17 and 18, God is pronouncing judgment against Babylon. Does Babylon even exist today? Oh, in so many ways. In its idolatry, in its merchandise, in its authority over man, Babylon is alive and well, and there's coming a day where that city that is really human beings in rebellion against God is going to fall and be judged. But all through his word, regardless of the period in history where he was revealing himself and how different human beings are interacting with their creator, I get to know God through his word. I get to hold on to this document. I get to cherish it. I get to study it. I get to read it. And through it and through my relationship with the Holy Spirit, what happens? He unveils himself to me. Little by little, day by day. And there's opinions where I think he's revealed himself to me. There's things that I thought that I knew about God 20 years ago that I've got all this figured out that all of a sudden it's like, wait a minute. He continues to expose himself. He continues to show me who I am in him and apart from him. He continues to reveal himself to me through you. Every single one of you has a testimony that is different than mine. 
Same word, same God, same Jesus, different personalities, different responses, different experiences. Beautiful. These who are before the throne, they were slaughtered. They were, their lives ended because they chose to hold on to the truth of who Jesus is. And then this sixth seal is truly overstimulating. What is it going to be like? What would have to occur for every mountain and every island to move from its current place? What kind of upheaval, what kind of earthquake is that? This description of, you know, the sun being darkened, it's seen more than likely as like, it could be nuclear activity. It could be volcanic activity. That whatever upheaval occurs that moves everything out of its place, that that throws up so much junk into the atmosphere that the sun is darkened, the moon is darkened. We're given the descriptions that stars are falling from heaven. And then again, the description, though, the emphasis is upon the authority of the Lamb that is opening the document. And then the two categories of human beings. Those who receive the word and hold on to the testimony of who Jesus Christ is and those who continue to reject who he is, recognizing that it's his wrath that's being poured out, asking the question, who can stand before the wrath of the Lamb? Do you know what the answer is? Is it nobody? You get to stand through faith. We are told, uh, Romans chapter 5, 1 Corinthians 15, we are told that we stand in the gospel. We are told that we stand in his grace. Here is God's free gift to you that if you choose to surrender to him, and to love him, to recognize who he is as creator, as savior, as judge, as king. That he is holy, that he is true, that he has wrath against sin. If you hold on to that gospel message, that that being became like you, that he died for your sins on that cross, that three days later that he rose again from the dead, that people saw him, they watched him ascend to heaven, they heard him, they ate with him. If you believe that message, that gift of grace causes you to stand for all eternity. Are you overstimulated? I am. All right, Luke, Kate, you guys want to come back up? We are going to turn to worship. And as they get ready to lead us in a couple more songs, I want us to read through a 3,000-year-old song. It's long, but I think it's worth it. It's a song of David. 
Again, a man from 3,000 years ago that we are told that his heart was after his creator. In all of his mistakes, we watch this man repent. We watch the promises that God gave to him. Remember that Jesus, he is the root of David. Listen to this song, and the song will also be our prayer. I will love you. This is Psalm 18. I will love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength, in whom I will trust. My shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. The pains of death surrounded me. The floods of ungodliness made me afraid. The sorrows of hell surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried out to my God. He heard my voice from his temple. And my cry came before him, even to his ears. The earth shook and trembled. The foundations of the hills also quaked and were shaken because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down with darkness under his feet. And he rode upon the cherub and flew. He flew upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness his secret place. His canopy around him was dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. Overstimulated yet I am. For the brightness before him, his thick clouds passed with hailstones and coals of fire. The Lord thundered from heaven and the Most High uttered his voice. Hailstones and coals of fire. He sent out his arrows and scattered the foe, lightnings in abundance, and he vanquished them. Then the channels of the sea were seen, the foundations of the world were uncovered. At your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. He sent from above, he took me, he drew me out of many waters, he delivered me from my strong enemy from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He also brought me out into a broad place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the clean, cleanness of my hands. He has recompensed me, for I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all of his judgments were before me, and I did not put away his statutes from me. I was also blameless before him, and I kept myself from my iniquity. Therefore, the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in this sight. And that is all accessed by faith. With the merciful, you will show yourself merciful. With a blameless man, you will show yourself blameless. With the pure, you will show yourselves pure. And with the devious, you will show yourself shrewd. For you will save the humble people. You will bring down the haughty looks. For you will light my lamp. The Lord my God will enlighten my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop. By my God I can leap over a wall. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. 
He is a shield to all who trust in him. For who is God except the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? It is God who arms me with strength and makes my way perfect. He makes my feet like the feet of deer and he sets me on my high places. He teaches my hands to make war so that my arms could bend a bow of bronze. You have also given me the shield of your salvation. Your right hand has held me up. Your gentleness has made me great. You enlarged my path under me so my feet did not slip. I have pursued my enemies and overtaken them. Neither did I turn back again until they were destroyed. I have wounded them so that they could not rise. They have fallen under my feet. For you have armed me with the strength for the battle. You have subdued under me those who rose up against me. You have also given me the necks of my enemies so that I destroyed those who hated me. They cried out, but there was none to save, even to the Lord, but he did not answer them. Then I beat them as fine as dust before the wind. I cast them out like dirt in the streets. You have delivered me from the strivings of the people. You have made me the head of the nations. A people I have not known shall serve me. As soon as they hear of me, they obey me. The foreigners submit to me. The foreigners fade away and come frightened from their hideouts. The Lord lives. Blessed be my rock. Let the God of my salvation be exalted It is God who avenges me and subdues the peoples under me. He delivers me from my enemies. You also lift me up above those who rise against me. You have delivered me from the violent man. Therefore, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the Gentiles, and sing praises to your name. Great deliverance he gives to his king and shows mercy to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. Amen. 